Everybody is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. Where we discuss political science and popular culture, as always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Rodman. Today we're going to be discussing the Brexit vote, which is an incredibly topical um, piece of history. Um, One of the major occurrences I think that's happened in the last couple of years. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to be looking at that through... Uh, we're going to be jumping around, I think, a bit in popular culture because it's an interesting thing. It doesn't really have a, a popular culture slant yet, so we're going to. Well, have- it's yeah, you know, not just in popular culture, but in our own, in our very own history, we don't have a, a a precedent like this. So it's you know, it's no wonder that there's very little to work with. But I don't. You can jump around. I'm going to stick with the separatists and stuff. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean it's for it's a very exciting time for political scientists. I think. Um, but before we get into that, uh, let's deal with our podcaster of the month for the Agora Podcast Network. And our podcaster of the month is Heather Butner Tiesco. Um, apologies, Heather, if I've butchered your the pronunciation of your name. Uh, but she does a podcast called the English Renaissance History Podcast, which is very interesting, dealing with music, culture, the arts, and maritime exploration. Renaissance England was an exciting place to be, with a huge amount happening, breaks with Rome, wars with France and Scotland and Spain. And she does a cool interview with a very um, interesting historian called Alison Weir, who's written a number of books. So guys, if you're interested in English history, and uh, I mean, English Renaissance history is incredibly fascinating and to a large extent it provides the basis for british colonial history so go have a listen i think it's uh will be pretty interesting for anybody who wants to have a listen to that um indeed but brock let's get into uh some brexit, brexit. stuff so please okay so what the hell happened um well I, I mean there's so many interpretations at the moment but look i'm gonna give you my two second uh summation of the brexit vote a bunch of fucking idiots doing something really fucking stupid. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so, it's so like, it's so out of, out of order. I mean, we're used to saying that kind of stuff about American politics. Yeah. You know, it's, um, we're not, we're not all that surprised, we're not truly surprised by, by Donald Trump's rise. Yeah. Um, a bit perplexed, like why? But, um, you know, we, if you, if someone had predicted Donald Trump's, uh, popularity i don't think anyone would have really been too shocked mm. whereas you know the brits well we like to make jokes about them because we know that they never truly do anything completely idiotic mm. um they threaten it a lot but they never follow through they're just too gentlemanly and kind of mind so, british um, politics is usually fairly pragmatic in the way that yes, they do their things and they've been like that for the last couple of hundred years so I was, I mean, I was surprised that this turned out the way it was. I was fully expecting, I mean, I thought, I thought it was going to be close, but I expected a no vote. Um, I, I was surprised with the outcome. Uh, you know, as I said, it was very close, but yeah, it was surprising to me. Yeah, certainly is surprising. It's like, if, if we had to title this episode now, it'd probably be called The Americanization of British Politics. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think to, let's put this into context, um, and doing it the way we do. I think we should discuss, 
like, what the fuck, is, you know, what is the European Union? Because one of the, the scariest things that happened during the, the vote was one of the most... Was the Google search. Yeah, the Google searches <laughs> were, what is the European Union? Which is scary when people are being asked to vote on... No, wait, so so Google's peak search just after the referendum happened um, in in Britain. So, so British people in Britain's uh, Google searches peaked highest for the EU after the referendum. So people didn't even know what they were voting for. Yeah. I mean, it it, it peaked afterwards. It, I mean, there was a peak just before, a peak during, and a peak just after, which was, I mean, the questions were EU, what is the EU, um, what does the Brexit vote mean, which is, you know, it's scary that people were trying to find this information just after they voted yeah. or just before they voted, which, you know, is not it, something it you would want. Be- Understandably topical for other people to be searching, you know, to, to be conducting those kinds of searches, um, mm. if they weren't British. But if you're the one voting, surely you should have informed yourself before the vote. Exactly. I, you know, I completely agree. And, um, I think one of the biggest problems is that the EU is the only entity of its kind, uh, both now in the world and in human history. It's a, it's a. Well, it's not the only regional organization, but it was one of the first, it was the first regional organization and no other regional organization has that level of integration. So. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, so in terms of, um, standards and quality, it is, it's, yeah, one of a kind. Yeah. And I think in my mind, the, the way I always, I, I try and, um, give, you know, in a, if I give an example of popular culture, uh, we are going to be talking about obviously the separatists in Star Wars, but I think the closest organization to it in science fiction is probably the United Federation of Planets in uh, the yeah. Star Trek universe. So you should run with that. Yeah. Yeah. So this, the start, in the Star Trek universe, you have uh, the way that the United Federations of Planets developed was you had Earth and Vulcan, which are two completely independent planets um, operating, uh, you know, kind of like empires. They had colonies on different planets. They had integrated, um, you know, economic systems that differed in very many ways. But in order to kind of stop as much conflict as possible between different peoples um, in the Alpha Quadrant of the galaxy, they decided to come together and make, firstly, uniform trading laws, which obviously has not gone into much in these in this in the um, show because that would be super boring. But you know, uniform trading laws, uniform military laws, so um, Starfleet becomes the military and exploration arm of the United Federations of Planets. Um, and as, it, as the name suggests, it's a federal system. So each independent star system or planet maintains its own laws on its own body, but they have to abide by certain regulations that adhere to the entire units. And obviously people can petition to become part of the Federation of Planets. There are certain episodes that deal with people leaving the Federation of Planets. But the amount of good that – and it's interesting that in Star Trek you do have these arguments of, well, if we join the Federation, we're losing a certain amount of independence. Absolutely true. But you're kind of you know, giving away a certain amount of independence – for all the benefits that uh, being part of the Federation gives you, which is military protection, access to large-scale economies, you know, access to mutual discussion platforms. And I think that's one of the biggest things, is that it negates the possibility of a certain amount of conflict between those planets because when a conflict breaks out, they have an ability to sit down and have a discussion about it 
rather than just going to war. It negates the realist principle of not knowing what anybody else is going to do because it creates a great place for discussion. And I think that's probably the closest thing that you get to the European Union in um, modern... In, in, well, in, except in for the Shade Army. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, the, Euros, the Euro has... Uh, the, I don't know. Does the Eurozone have some kind of treaties about sharing military forces? I mean, they've got the Eurofighter and stuff like that. Uh, they'll, they'll have shared military policies, but they and and they'll cooperate in certain missions. But they, I don't know. To my knowledge, there isn't a shared force. Okay, I could be wrong. But I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, as the European Union developed, that that would also be developing slowly but surely. Although, obviously, this no, I would be. Yeah, I would be surprised because yeah, because in my limited knowledge of the, the Euro's uh, military. Uh, policies. I know that they're very strict in not sharing uh, tactics and uh, and uh, skills development. Mm. So they don't know how you know they don't really want to know who's getting better at what. Mm. And the reason for that is they don't want to feel threatened by each other. They don't want to feel like you know I uh, France wouldn't want to feel weak because uh, Britain's particularly strong in its navy, for example. Germany wouldn't want to feel weak because you know Poland doesn't have the best um, I don't know wall defenses, whatever. The, they will focus on developing their own army as best they can to defend themselves independently, mm. but they know that it's in their best interest to help other European states defend themselves. Absolutely. Um, and, and improve other Europe, uh, you know, Europe's security as a, as a continent. Yeah. So, uh, they're, they're quite individualized. They're quite independent in that way. But, you know, if, if they, if everyone's going to, um, participate in some military operation, then they do cooperate to a, to, you know, to a large extent. Mm. I don't know of any shared forces, and that's. I think that that's what makes it even more. You know, it is very similar to the to the United Federation of Planets. Is that it's not a state. Um, you know, the European yeah. Union doesn't make it doesn't have a monopoly of coercive power across its entire territory, which is one of the fundamental definitions of a state. Because, as you said, they don't have that military power. I mean, even in the United Federation of Planets, Vulcan still has their fleet of ships. Earth has their fleet of st- ships. The The Enterprise is actually a Starfleet vessel, which is, you know, maybe the European Union doesn't have that yet, but if Earth went to war with Vulcan, which is unlikely to happen, but they wouldn't be using the Enterprise to do that because the Enterprise is a Federation vessel, not a Earth vessel or a Vulcan vessel. It belongs to the whole organization. But I think importantly is that they've made certain rules and regulations around how they, you know, get on with their lives within the Federation. So, you know, trading gold press latinum and regulations on which alien woman you're allowed to sleep with. I don't know. Kirk, stop sleeping with everybody. <laughs> but obviously there's another example of uh, this in popular culture, which is the um, secessionist movement in the Star Wars universe. Well, we'll get to that later because I, there are strong differences there um, and there are also very strong similarities. Mm-hmm. But the reason why there's – I want to talk about the similarities that the EU has with a state. So we, so we say that as a regional body, it's not a state. Mm-hmm. But it does have it does have many um, operations and policymaking capabilities that make it similar to a state. Mm-hmm. It also has a mandate that's similar. So as members of the EU, individual European states – Participate in cooperative policy making, yeah. and they so so they write laws and stuff for um, you know for European for for Europe, and those are binding. Mm. Uh, so without consulting 
the populations of individual states. Mm. The European Union gets to make laws for those citizens mm. but on a representative basis. So representatives of Belgium yeah. you know, will be will be present at um, EU policymaking sessions. Yeah. And and they will be able to, you know, uh, they can prescribe petrol policy and yeah. um, transport laws. Food and regulations. That, kind of that becomes that that becomes binding that you know, that's binding for Belgian citizens. Yeah. Uh, so, so in that way, it operates very much like a state um, because it you know, it sacrifices certain freedoms, mm. uh, but only you know only insofar as it benefits the the security, if it improves the well being of, of European citizens. Absolutely. So, and that became uh, you know that became a very popular model for other regional mm. organizations, and it you know it sort of took off at the, in the late nineties, early two thousands, where we got uh, ASEAN, where uh, we got the. ECOWAS and SADC, mm. um, we got the, you know, the Latin American countries joining together where each country sort of, each state realized that the United Nations is a global body is mm. maybe a little too far, is a little too far away for it to influence more domestic matters. Yeah. But it, but they had enough in, in, uh, in common with its, with neighbor states for them to set up regional bodies so they can share, you know, these types of, uh, policymaking opportunities. That would improve trading and you know uh, security and, and all sorts of things. Yeah. So so regionalism took off after the EU was established, mm. and uh, it's certainly becoming a powerful movement, or it has become a powerful movement in global politics. So that in that context, it is you know it still baffles us why uh, states, especially as influential and powerful states as Britain, would want to leave. Well, see, I have there is a problem that I see with the European Union and a lot of. A lot of political scientists would disagree with this point, but I think it's one that's open for discussion. And, um, you know, anybody listening to our last episode on Spider-Man will have noticed that in that case, I'm a, I'm a bit more of a realist. But when it comes to things like the European Union, I'm very much a democratic idealist. So I think one of the biggest issues with the European Union, and this is the argument being put forward by smarter people in UKIP and Front National and other conservative parties within Europe is that the European Union is lacking in its capacity for democracy. And the reason that that is that that, that argument is being put forward is because when the European Union was first established, it really looked at laws that dealt with issues of interstate um, concern. So trading barriers between France and England and Germany. And there was a lot, a lot of the people were like, yeah, well, I mean, that's a very macro political issue. We're happy to have the representatives that are chosen by our governments to make those decisions. As the European Union has grown, it's, it's the fingers into the number of different pies have also grown. So the European Union is now legislating on things like farming mechanisms and food production and things that affect very specifically people on the ground in countries and like France and Spain. And which aliens you can sleep with. <laughs> which aliens you're allowed to sleep with, yeah. Obviously, and then there's obviously religious, I mean, religious matters have come into to fore as well. The European Union taking on specific things about, about religious concerns, which is concerning when the European Union representatives who go to the European Parliament are not democratically elected by the people within those countries. Now, the argument is made, well, those representatives are sent by the governments who are, you know, elected um, by the people. The problem is, is that I think it's too far removed. 
So it would be much better if the representatives to the European Union were being elected directly by the people. You would still have representative democracy, which is great, because we see what happens when you have a direct democracy on big decisions like this, because it ends up being a fuck-up. But it's very important that if the European Union is starting to expand its purview into the realms of statehood, which it is, that those representatives are directly elected. And I've spoken to a couple of people who are part of Front National in a bit more moderate people in Front National in in France. And they say... Of course, they all say they're the moderate. Yeah. (laughs) But a lot of them say, like, look, we're not necessarily saying we want to leave the European Union. We're aware of some of the good things that the European Union has done. But we want reform. We want to be able to elect our representatives directly. And I don't think that's too much to ask. So I think that that has also... That's kind of like a a basis for the anger at the moment of... It is a side point, I, but I do agree with you. I think as representative democracy um, gets exposed for its failures and its weaknesses, these types of um, sort of extended appointments of, say, you know, representatives to the European Parliament is, are, are, are going to be attacked and they should be attacked. Because if we have set the precedent for voting uh, in, your, whether it be your national parliament or your regional representative, and here when I use the word region, I mean your province, mm. you know, your locality within a state. Um, if you would, if there are mechanisms for voting in your city's mayor or your local governments, then why not have representatives at the regional level? And here I mean, you know, interstate level mm. also being voted in democratically. Why do we let, why do we leave that to be appointed, uh, by the executive of, of, a, of a state? Mm. Um, so it's a good thing that that kind of pressure exists in in, in Europe, and I don't think that um, pragmatists can get a, can can get away much for much longer with saying that no, we need the executive to appoint the, the representatives. We're yeah. not going to do this and, as democratically as we could. And I think that this is something that you and I would both agree on. Is you know, I would, I'm, I'm a very against technocratic leadership when it comes to democracy. And by technocratic leadership, we mean leadership by economists and leadership by bureaucrats. That's not necessarily, and lawyers. And lawyers. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that they have a huge amount to offer. Brock and I are And not, Vulcans. We don't want Vulcans leading us. <laughs> we don't want Vulcans fucking coming in with their emotionless bullshit. Fucking, okay, just <laughs> learn how to, how to be happy, you assholes. <laughs> but the important thing is, is that economists are, you know, Brock and I aren't economists. We need input and data from economists to make good policy decisions. But the problem is, is that when you have economists making policy decisions, they tend to see everything as a zero sum game. And it's either, you know, it's everybody's a rational, you know, utility maximizing person. And it takes all the ideology and all the nuance and philosophy out of everything. And that's not necessarily a good thing. And I think the European Union has become a very technocratic organization. Can you hear that? I think I think there's a deathly silence as all the economists stop listening to this podcast. <laughs> we don't care. Fuck off, you economists. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, no, don't. Stay, don't. stay, stay. <laughs> Kili, you're such an idiot. <laughs> Okay, well, I believe that even if political scientists were to rule the country, they should definitely be surrounded by economists oh, no, more so than any other profession. I, I'm just saying that political scientists should be the one who make the final decision. I'll listen to the economist, but I imagine... I don't care who it is as long as it's not you. <laughs> I imagine myself as a king 
of political scientists surrounded by my <laughs> economist advisors who I might oh, take there's their advice. There's a lot more silence. There's a lot more silence. A lot of people stop listening now. But, you know, you know, it, it does, it does read a, a good point of the fact that, um, th- there are technocratic issues in the European Union. But I don't think yeah. that any of these issues that we've just raised in the last 15 minutes actually came into the decision making of a lot of the yes votes in Brexit. No, these, these, these are the issues that, that would have come up if we were voting for, <laughs> yeah. for We have our first sponsorship for the podcast, which means that we are growing fast. Um, it's awesome and it's a sponsor. It's Amazon's Audible, which is really cool. Um, so for you, the listeners of the Lands of Leviathan podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. So get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash LOL. So that's Lands of Leviathan, but it's LOL. So www.audibletrial.com forward slash LOL. Over 180,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I highly advise it, guys. Yeah, I, I strongly suggest it as well. It's an app that I like to use and, uh, you know, it lets me download any audiobook that I want from Amazon's library and listen to it on my, on my cell phone. I can listen to it on my audio device. Uh, whenever I'm doing something pretty mundane, if I'm doing housework, if I'm catching the train or walking somewhere, get to catch up on any professional or studying or any leisure readership that I need to do. And it's, uh, it's just too convenient to ignore. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah. And, um, you know, one of the best uh, things about it is that you can catch up on some really cool works that you may not have read in um, on paper form. So one of the things I recommend is uh, a book that we've spoken about quite a lot is Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, which is on Audible in audiobook format. So you guys have no excuse not to know what we're talking about next time we talk about it. That's true. I've also got two books by Francis Fukuyama that let me catch up on his ideas of political order and the origins of political order. So um, it certainly helps us, you know, keep us informed with uh, both our studies and, you know, giving us content for the podcast. That's right. Awesome, guys. Uh, so go have a look. Um, remember, it's www.audibletrial.com forward slash lol. Now back to the episode. Okay, let's let's stop and let's break it down as to how the fuck did this happen in the first place? Because I think it's a it's a very chaotic and almost it's a funny story if you weren't actually involved in, you know, in the, in the okay. Brexit vote. It is a funny story. Give, give, I'm going to play the simpleton here. I'm going to do the, the demographic argument. Um, you want to take the complex stuff. So I'm going to say the, the reason why people in Britain voted to leave the EU was because they're getting too old and too insecure. We've all noted how the demographics in many European states are increase are top heavy. That there are more older people than there are younger people, and you know, as people, well, the older generation is it's no it's no secret are growing in the insecurities about the world, and would like you know would want to protect the country that they have, so they don't want immigrants, and they are older people tend to be higher on the intolerance scale of mm. migration and mm. migrant workers. So with, um, you know, Britain's what used to be fairly flexible migrant laws, they used to have, uh, you know, they've taken on a huge, uh, foreign workforce. And, uh, and it's, uh, and some, some of them are skeptical about these policies that have, you know, slowly, as they've watched insecurity increase in Britain, 
they are skeptical of the, of the migrants being to blame for it. Yeah. So they want to keep migrants from coming into the country. They blame the EU because they think that the EU is part of the reason why they have to have such lenient migration policies. And they think that by leaving the EU, they can have stricter border control mm. and stop people from coming into Britain and they can have their protected piece of green pasture all to themselves. Which is not true. Um, I'm, yeah, No, it's not true. And I'm obviously um, oversimplifying it and I'm mm. making it sound quite horrible, in fact. But uh, to a certain extent, that's, you know, that's the case. And it's not, uh, and it's not just, um, an argument that can be made for, for older folk in Britain. Mm. It's, uh, it's certainly something that, um, I've come across in, in, uh, in young people that they live there as well. They also feel insecure. Mm. But, uh, but it's, it's a security concern. Um, and it's, uh, and it's being blamed, uh, well, sorry, it's, the blame is being put on, uh, the EU for its, its fairly lenient migration policy. Yeah. And I, I think all of that is true. Uh, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think you have to start diving in a little bit deeper. And there's some, some fucking weird stuff that happened in England at the time because David Cameron didn't want to leave. And as much as I disagree with most but of But why David, did he bring it up? Okay. Why so did that's, he initiate the referendum? That's a really interesting thing. So as you've said, there is a conservative swing going on in Europe at the moment because the world is changing incredibly fast. And, one of the jobs of cons- on, of conservative ideology is to slow down the rate of change to kind of keep us safe. And it's oftentimes it does a very good job of that. It's like, okay, guys, just slow it down. Let's, let's see where we're going with this. It's there are the Vulcans of the United Federation of Planets. Like humans, stop going and contacting the Borg because that causes problems. Okay. <laughs> let's just wait a second. Just everybody chill out. So the problem is in, in England, the, the, the conservative parties, the very far-right conservatives, are represented by UKIP, which is uh, obviously the United Kingdom Independence Party. So they've, I mean, you can just hear by their name, they want to leave the European Union. Now, David Cameron was very concerned with the growth of their power. And he, I don't know, in a really weird political move, attempted to preempt their ability to call a referendum by calling it himself, fully expecting that the referendum would come out... Would fail. Would fail, exactly. Which I think was maybe a fair assumption at the time, but who knows. So, But that was, what, a year ago? Yeah, it was a year ago, so fair assumption. I mean, even up to three months ago, we were saying, yeah, it's fine, David Cameron's going to be all right. But as it turned out, nope, you were wrong. The other problem is, is that Nigel... Ford- Can I just I just, want to, I just want to interject before you get to Nigel. Um, you, It's so important to emphasize how conservative ideology um, protects itself from change. Yeah. But the campaign that was run by UKIP was a campaign for change. They were saying that to be a strong Britain, we need to change, we need to adapt. And their interpretation of adapting to the, you know, to global forces and global trends is by removing itself from the EU. In other words, to change, they have to be conservative. It was clever though. It was clever, but it's not, you know, it's not traditionally conservative. It was rather um, mm, mm. underhand. But it was, it was kind of like almost can't, a change back to the past. Like we want to go back to when Britain was strong yes. and, you know, Britain was independent. Yes. That was the kind of. So don't be fooled. This is not a vote for progression. Yeah. It, it was, let's change back to what we were, which is, <laughs> you know, okay, <laughs> let's just go back. I don't know. But the interesting thing was obviously Boris Johnson, who was the mayor of London uh, and is now, you know, on the rise in British politics. He was all for leaving. Nigel Farrar, who's the leader of the UK party, he was all for leaving. And fuck these guys. Like, one of the first things they did <laughs> was declare that this day we celebrate our Independence Day. Like, 
a good politician doesn't <laughs> quote a movie. Okay, that's not cool, guys. And especially It's really cool. What are you talking about? No, I'd love to it's not I'll cool. vote for a guy like, that, that I, quotes Independence Day. I want a like, little I want a little <laughs> bit of deeper analysis then today. We I mean it's a cool speech. It's a very cool speech, but let's no, just be honest. If you, when you get inducted as president, you should be told may the force be ever in your arms. <laughs> the force be ever in but okay, so the, and the, the Saint Gandalf, <laughs> the interesting thing is, is that they say you know it was brought up by John Oliver on uh, last week tonight. He was saying that it's interesting that these guys are calling this the independence of Britain when Britain was already independent. This is not an independence yeah. vote. Britain is independent, yeah. whether it's part of the EU or not. And the usually independence days are celebrations of independence from Britain. So it's just <laughs> <laughs> what was interesting here is that what, to go back to your point. Look, sorry, um, be, before yeah. you before you move on, um, it's also interesting to note that Britain was one of the most, if not the most, independent member state of the EU. Yeah, it already had the the most amount of luxury, the the, the most number of um, uh, leniencies granted to it. Yeah, uh, more than any other state. You know, it got to keep its its pound. It got. Uh, it didn't have to share in the in the Schengen visa. Um, it got to. It still got access to the European single economy, single market. It got a lot of benefits without having to give up a huge amount of stuff. Yeah, and, and now it turns around and still like, ah, uh, sorry. Yeah, still not interested. But so, just to go back to your point on you know the, this aging population problem, for all of you guys who are interested in the politics of the future, this. In my estimation, this is one of the biggest problems that we are going to face in first world countries because... Yeah, it'll all be meaningless unless you listen to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are the ones who are going to tell you how to fix everything. But <laughs> histori- if you look at the history of politics, uh, you can see that there is an older population who managed to accrue a certain amount of wealth and political power. They're usually smaller because obviously people are dying off. So usually what happens is the older population is smaller than the younger population. The younger population is discontent with the way things are going. And they force change by dragging the older population with them. Now, in the case of old school imperialist Europe, this was done by force of arms. But when we got into democratic situations, this could be done by votes, obviously, you know, which is good. So not many people died, but the younger people represented a majority and they could drag the country into the future. That's not the case anymore, because if you look at Europe today, Europe now has an incredibly old population, which outnumbers the younger population because birth rates rates are so low. Now, because old people are naturally conservative, that's just the human trait, that as we get older, our ideals tend to become much more concretized and we stay in the way we think. That causes problems because it means that our rate of change in terms of the way we think is much slower at a national level. And you can, if you guys go and look at the stats of the voting breakdown, everybody, pretty much everybody below the age of 35 voted to remain. It was the, it was the 55 to 65 and up vote that voted to leave. Um, and so this whole thing is pretty much the elderly population selling out the people who are going to be running the country in the future. That's fucked. Like, if I was a British young person, I would be super pissed at this point. Um, you see, this is where you and I are fundamentally different. You're a democratic idealist, but I'm definitely uh, more conservative. I don't think that 
countries need to change and that they need to change on the back of vagrant youth. Um, they, <laughs> vagrant youth. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, obviously we're being hard-nosed about this and we're really generalizing by saying that the youth bring change. Because uh, obviously, you know, we undermine the, the roles of, of all the leaders that normally, you know, have to uh, organize the youth and make sure that they, their cause is just and, and, um, and can be implemented. But what I want to get to is that that just because the the youth are in the majority and they want change and they're able to with their numbers you know enforce it doesn't make it a good thing it's it could be you know often they're really bad ideas mm-hmm. and they just because they happen to to have one doesn't mean that it needs to be enforced and that's the problem I have with the progression narrative saying that things aren't good unless they're progressive you know oh do you have this policy in your country no well then you're not progressive oh do you um you know, are you in favor of, you know, free trade? No, well, then you're not progressive. Mm. Since when is progressive, you know, been attached to things changing? Just because they change isn't, progressive has the connotation of being positive. It means that you, mm. you, it's, it's, it's become what development used to be. In the seventies and the eighties, development used to mean that you were growing towards something better, something good. Mm. Now development we've realized has actually become really nuanced and actually been watered down. And we've, we've seen that there are so many different ways to develop and development means different things to different people in different countries mm. and they're different policies to implement now everyone wants to progress mm. and um and they're saying oh no progression is a good type of change but so so people who say well let's change you know by voting conservative or let's change by voting to remain in the eu not that still doesn't necessarily attach the positive connotation that's going to come with progress mm. um what what is more is also the the What's been ignored in your analysis is the the number of youth that have been identified as being frustrated by the current economy. Like you say, you know, they, they also want to change things. And they are quite happy to keep immigrants out. They feel mm. that their jobs are being so that you know, they're struggling with unemployment. They are the UK doesn't suffer from a lack of education. Um and yet, you know, everyone's sitting around with degrees and no jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I wouldn't, there is, uh, it's been, it's been well covered how frustrated the youth are and, uh, it, and how they've also, you know, it's influenced their decision to, to leave the EU. Yeah. Look, and I, um, but, you know, again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. It's an over, it's a generalization. It is. And that's, I think that's my immediate reaction is that, you know, this is a massive generalization, but I think that you raise a very important philosophical point. Um, progression for the sake of progression. Uh, oh, fuck, I'm quoting Harry Potter. <laughs> progression for the sake of progression <laughs> is not good and should be discouraged. Uh, you are absolutely right. Um, however, I think if when we're looking at things historically, progression oftentimes leads to betterment. Um, and it, and even that is a generalization. So we need to look. You know, you need to look at it policy by policy. You need to look at should we leave the European Union. Um, that is a progression one way or the other. No, you shouldn't. That's a, that's a bad idea. Should we stop immigration? Um, well, I'm not sure. Let's look at the data. And that's, you know, that, that's some of the practical stuff that came into this vote was many people saying, we want to stop immigration because immigrants take our jobs, immigrants cause crime, immigrants bring in, um, extremism. So those were, you know, three of the arguments that were made. But when, when you actually look at the data, when the data is looked at, immigrants are not taking jobs. Um, if they are taking jobs, they're taking jobs that British people are not doing at the moment anyway. So that's, that's one, that's one thing. Secondly, 
immigrants are often taking jobs that are left vacant because of the fact that the UK doesn't have a large enough labor force because of the aging population. Um, there have been very little statistics showing an increase in crime in areas where migration has increased. And there have been very little evidence to show that a large amount of extremists are coming in with the immigrants. Now, a lot of people would then come at me and say, oh, but what about this one dude? Or what about this one instance? Like, yes, there are always very subjective stories that you can tell me that substantiate your point. We need to look at gross domestic data and say, okay, if if there was a 10% rise in crime when we allowed immigration, that's a definite problem. We need to sort it out. We don't have that. There's not even a 1% rise in crime. Um, and if the, and, and, if, yeah. and the way that you sort it out is by... Uh, improving your domestic policy, you know, on crime, not necessarily leaving the EU. It's yeah, not stopping it. Exactly. If you want to maybe regulate Im uh, immigration policy, then regulate it. But I don't see how the EU leaving the EU is going to stop. And let's let's now talk about I think a, a last point of this podcast because we we're going quite hardcore here. <laughs> but <laughs> I want to talk about what's going to happen now, and this is where I want to bring in Star Wars because it's. Star Wars is an interesting story, mainly because George Lucas was terrible at writing stories. But the whole secessionist movement was essentially a false flag operation. Um, I don't know if there were any actual people who wanted to secede or that they were just in cahoots with Emperor Palpatine. Were, were there planets no, that were really I, upset? Yes, yes. There's a, a long history of discontent in the galactic, uh, in the, in the Star Wars galaxy. Um, there, what know, were they upset there was with? like, there, well, it's interesting because it doesn't directly relate to this epi um, podcast episode. Um, since they, uh, it's, it's more of a peripheral power struggle. So they, so obviously you have Coruscant as the capital and you've got the, what they call the inner, the inner planets or the inner states. Mm. And they are more powerful and more influential. They, you know, are, they get more done in, in gaining the, the benefits, um, from running the Galactic Republic. And they are, you know, they're very powerful. Uh, leaders in the in the Senate, um, they're normally bureaucrats, and they are able to corruptly benefit themselves at the ignorance of the outer rim or the uh, the less powerful states. I'm just trying to remember what they were called. I mean, there were plans like Halcyon, you know, that um, they were, were the outer rim. They were the outer rim worlds. That's what they were called. No, uh, there was another. Well, the periphery another worlds. But, but, <laughs> yes, no, yeah. In, in political terms, they were the peripheral states. Yeah. So they were less influential. They didn't gain benefits of, of the, the trading regime that was implemented. They weren't regulated. The, the crime in their worlds was, was the worst in the galaxy. Mm. Um, they were normally run by, by warlords. Uh, Tatooine is a really good example of this. They mm. were ignored by, by Coruscant. And that's largely because they didn't, you know, they didn't have the influential political clout in the, in the Senate. So they got, to, so the, a few of them, um, got together. They were mostly like, uh, they were like the manufacturing worlds, basically. Mm, mm. Um, they were like the labor force. They got together, they, they were making droids and, uh, there were just a few of them and they were led by Count Dooku on the face of it, who yeah. actually reported to Darth Sidious. Mm. But, uh, he got, he, he, uh, got them together and he, you know, convinced them that they have a real problem and that their problem in the Republic is, has got to do with the, with the Senate. And that they, and to resolve it, they not only need to leave it, um, but they need to 
destroy anyone who would stop them from leaving. So the Republic wasn't very happy with these separatists, uh, and they obviously tried to stop it, because not not only were they left with egg on their face after the Naboo crisis, but they were appearing very weak at this stage. Mm. Uh, they weren't able to regulate the outer room. They weren't able to um, rein in the Trade Federation. Uh, they had been exposed for being overly bureaucratized and corrupt officials rather than being genuine democratic leaders. Uh, and so they didn't want the separatists to get their way because it would make them look even worse and probably set a precedent and ultimately fracture the republic. So, by, you know, under the hand of uh, Chancellor Palpatine, uh, they united uh, against the separatists and, you know, used the, the Jedi Order mm-hmm. and their clone army to go and take on the, the droid army and defeat the separatists in what is known as the Clone Wars. So that does that obviously doesn't apply very strongly to you know to Brexit. Yeah. But what is what what is noticeable is how um under is how dissatisfied members of a regional organization vote with their feet. They yeah. simply leave the organization. So they and they don't really there's no precedent of, of, of states doing this to enforce a change. Mm. So it's not that Britain was threatening to leave in order for the EU to change its policies. Mm. It's just more, it just, they were genuinely interested in leaving the organization. And that's done to, uh, you know, to, to prioritize the security of one particular state. So they're not interested in doing this to benefit the EU. They're not doing this to benefit the Galactic Republic. Yeah. The separatists want to leave because they think it'll benefit their manufacturing uh, productivity, it'll benefit their security um, measures. They'll probably have a better military policy after this that they couldn't Im- implement with the Trade Federation mm. around. Uh, so so they, it's, it's primarily about leaving, but about becoming independent and seeing that independence as the best source of security yeah. for themselves. And I think so that, that's where I would draw the similarity with the separatists. And I think that that similarity transposes over to Count Dooku. Now, if you compare Count Dooku to Nigel Farrar, um, <laughs> Boris Johnson. <laughs> and Boris Johnson, <laughs> yeah. Count Dooku was definitely going to meetings in the, you know, periphery worlds and, you know, raising up quite a lot of popular stuff and being like, you know, they don't care about you and they take your tax money and they don't give it back and all of that. I'm sure Count Dooku was doing that in, you know, a, a deleted scene of, of Star Wars. But, <laughs> you know, so what I find interesting is the fact that Nigel Farrar and Boris Johnson were driving around in a bus talking about how much money they send to the European Union. And I don't want to give exact figures. It was, you know, £190 million pounds a month or something, um, which was an incorrect figure anyway, because it didn't take into account the rebate that was given back to the United Kingdom from uh, the European Union. But the, the, the policy being made was that if we leave the European Union, then that money would be better spent on the National Health Service, the NHS. Um, cool. Nice policy. Immediately after the Brexit vote, Nigel, you know, Nigel Farrar was asked, right, so now we have this, the situation. Can you guarantee that we will be using this money to, to put into the NHS? And his immediate answer was, well, I can't guarantee that. Um, and I, I would never have made a guarantee of that. So it's just like, well, fuck you, dude. Like we left, <laughs> we left the Republic. You said that we were going to have like awesome times, but you took over the, galaxy uh this is not what we signed up for uh count dooku slash nigel farrar uh, what's going on here 
And um, I think that this just goes into so many other policy problems with what's what's happening in Brexit. So if you take migration, Europe, uh, the UK now has to negotiate a whole bunch of trade deals with individual companies, uh, countries in the European Union. If it wants to negotiate with the European Union, it has to adhere to European Union law, which is free migration of labor, similar to what Norway has. Um, so you're replacing a bipartisan agreement that, you know, is, is working pretty well with a multi-party f- fuck, clusterfuck mm-hmm. of agreements that are going to cause a huge amount of trouble. Not, you know, and, so they're not going to get what they wanted to, and it's going to cost them a huge amount more in the long term anyway. Yeah. And, well, it, it, yeah, you know, I, it's, com- it's correct what you're saying, but what's, what's most startling for me as well is that they didn't have to put themselves in this situation, which is, okay, sounds like an obvious thing to say, <laughs> but it's, the, but, um, that they didn't, they weren't necessarily in the outer rim, so to speak. You know, they weren't like a country, they weren't like Mustafa. They, they were Britain who were definitely on, in the inner circle in the yeah, EU. They, they the were not states. marginalized. Um, they were one of the core states and very influential. Mm. Um, you know, if they, if they really had huge, um, disputes to, to resolve, then they could have done so within the procedures that within the the means that exist at the, mm. at the, in uh, Brussels. Exactly. So yeah, it's it's ultimately surprising, and you know, again, it, it illustrates the the disjuncture between the um, comparison with the separatists in Star Wars. Um, another thing I wanted to raise uh, was that Britain, if you read. Uh, much about Brexit, the word that is used most is uncertainty. Yeah. You had a short little narrative there on the future of what Britain has to do now. Yeah. And what we can expect. So, you know, everybody knows about Article 50 in the EU. Uh, yeah. So it's a constitution yeah. um, that allows, you know, member states to leave. Um, but that, you know, the referendum doesn't, imp- doesn't, uh, implement that. The referendum was just, was just to get an idea of who, you know, who wants to vote and who wants to leave. And since, you know, you're a democratic state and most of the people want to leave, you kind of, you know, you have a mandate to do so. However, that is a debatable point because mm. a, a referendum does not sanction that activity. It doesn't sanction a movement away from the EU. It's just a gauge of opinion. And it's especially important. Well, I would say it's an important gauge only because there was what 36% voter turnout. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a gauge of how little people care. That's mm. the only gauge it, it's, um, it sanctions. It does not necessarily mandate, uh, the implementation of Article 15. Yeah. So it's no surprise here that what might have, you know, implementing Article 15, which will, you know, take up to six months, I think, mm. and still even longer to negotiate those complex trade agreements you were talking about, and then still further to write the new immigration policies and implement those as, as new laws. This could take years. Based on a simple, small, ignored referendum. Oh, absolutely. It's, um, and while the pound it's, it's quite startling. Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, some uh, extremists, I don't think they, oh, I certainly hope they're not correct. They've said that they, it, it will uh, ignite the worst financial crisis. Uh, it'll, it'll be worse than the 2008 financial crisis. Mm. The, the effect that this will have on the world economy. And it's no, it's no secret that I'm no economist. Yeah. But, uh, that just sounds extreme to me. I don't know if it's really well, that, but we've really seen what what's happened to the currency yeah. over the last week. Well, that's two things. Uh, I think my last two points for this podcast, and the first one is is an e- economics point, and and it almost goes back to what we were saying in the beginning. When economists, which is exactly what you should do, when economists were co- you know consulted about this, pretty much every single economist said 
do not do this. This is a bad idea. You fucking idiots. Why are you even thinking about this? Um, so explain to me why they said that. that you know, for, for many of the reasons we've heard, they said it would have a huge impact on the pound, so the pound will drop. The uncertainty caused in the European Union will cause a huge amount of um, foreign direct investment to be pulled out. And the, you know, the, one of the things that markets hate the most is uncertainty. I mean, we know the fact that most stockbrokers are essentially children who freak out whenever something changes. So th- that's what we see. We're seeing a huge amount of changes and a huge amount of uncertainty, exactly what you said. And that's, uh, that's the reason why we're having these economic fallouts at the moment. Now, well, what I was trying to get to was the fact that Britain used to have access to the way that the EU is set up. Um, as an economic uh, area mm. is that all European citizens act as one economy. So exactly. they're all you know, consumers and producers in the same economy and they call that a single market. Yeah. And Britain had access to that single market. So it could sell and produce markets, uh, produce markets, it could pre- sell and produce goods uh, to that market and it could consume goods and services from that market as a single economy. Now it will have to do that as a separate economy. Exactly. And uh, the and me- members of the EU parliament Will be will not want to reward this type of behavior that Britain's performing, um, with you know by giving it access to that single market Mm. because it might uh, arouse the interest of other states who are disenchanted with the EU and they might want to leave while still having the beneficial economic access uh, that they enjoy at the moment. Mm. So it you know it'll be in its it'll not be in its best interest to allow Britain to have that access and. And it means that they will now have to implement excise duties and all sorts of other funny things I don't understand. But basically, you'll pay more for European goods as a British citizen. Because they'll be out of the free trade. I mean, their borders, yeah, they'll be out of free, their borders yeah. st- start to exist again. And those, but just have patience with me because you know, this stuff doesn't come naturally. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, neither of us are economists, so I completely understand. But this is this – fact, we need to get an economist on this podcast. <laughs> this, brings us, this brings me to my second point, and this is really yeah. interesting now. The United Kingdom is, you know, the last bastion of the British Empire, really. And what we've seen now is Scotland had a referendum two years ago where they wanted to yeah. see if they wanted to leave the United Kingdom. And there wasn't really enough practical reason for them to do so. And at the time, I was saying, this is incredibly dumb. Why do you want to leave the United Kingdom for the exact same reasons that I would have said to the United Kingdom? Why would you want to leave the European Union? And it's interesting to see the arguments that England was making to Scotland. It sounds very similar to the arguments that the pro, to you know, the people who wanted to stay were making to the people who wanted to leave. But now. Yeah, it's very hypocritical. Yeah. Now Scotland, which voted 68% to stay within the European Union. Now that's yeah. a, that's a big issue. That's a, that's a huge, firstly a, a, a democratic problem, um, that they can be dragged along by the United Kingdom uh, as a whole. Yeah. But this gives, this gives the, um, the referendum uh, another chance to actually say, well, no, we want to remain part of the European Union. So we're going to leave the UK. Not to mention the fact that if they do that, then Northern Ireland might do that. So we might be seeing a much more historical trend now of the reunification of Ireland, which is pretty, I mean, I think it's pretty cool. But that means that England, for the first time in what, 500 years, will suddenly be outside of its own empire 
and will be surrounded by the European Union, essentially, making it this just crazy, almost the it Switzerland is, it, of of the United Kingdom. It's weird. Yes, as much as I struggle to get my head around the economic implications of this, it really is baffling, and it's quite exciting, if you ask me, to see how the geopolitics will play out from this and how, like you say, Scotland stands a chance to to separate and to join the EU how northern ireland stand, uh, you know it's um, it was also captured that northern ireland uh, almost well it was a landslide in favor of remain mm. uh, so so northern ireland does not want to be with britain on this it does not want to be independent and they could end up you know unifying with uh, the republic of ireland mm. and uh, <laughs> and there were even jokes flying around how because london all voted to remain that they also <laughs> secede <laughs> from from the uk this tiny london <laughs> <laughs> Because, of course, and, that and makes sense. London is a very young city. It, it absolutely makes sense. I wouldn't reduce London to age. I would rather say that London's a very uh, cosmopolitan and productive city, and they, they benefit hugely from being closely aligned with the EU. So they're quite in favor of remaining. Of course. Uh, it's no surprise there. But it's it's like saying that, uh, you know, um, let's say uh, Geonosis basically had its battle on Coruscant and Coruscant was like, stuff this, I'm leaving the Republic. Yeah. And every Geonosian in, in Coruscant was like, well then fine, we, you know, we'll, we'll join. Um, so imagine Coruscant being surrounded by Geonosians who were suddenly the new Republic. It's, Which is, be, it's yeah. crazy. And you know, this it's, is, this is paramount to the, to Vulcan leaving the United Federations of Planet, but the small, you know, Earth, Colonies on Vulcan remaining part of this, <laughs> you know, it's it's crazy. Um, what? Well, yeah, it really it, it really is reducing. I mean, all these terms that we use like uncertainty to describe Britain at the moment is usually what they use to describe markets and countries in Africa. Yeah. Um, it's uh, and and w- another thing that is comparative to that is similar to American politics is that the campaign leader for Boris Johnson's uh, for um, the campaign manager Michael Gov. What's his name? Michael Gove. Uh, yes, uh, yes, has yes. has announced his candidacy for <laughs> for parliament. Hardly surprising. Maybe it's hardly surprising. This is unheard of in British politics. This kind of backstabbing would never happen. <laughs> this is a completely American move. Yeah. Okay, so we are completely running out of time, but I'd like to do one last almost segment that we've never done before on a podcast. I want to see what do you predict? What's in the where do you see uh, the United Kingdom twenty years from now? Well, I have to go on record in saying that in saying that I. I'm never, uh, I never predict change. So I didn't think that this referendum would pass. Um, I also, uh, so I've been proved wrong there. And so I don't think that the, the Scotland referendum will happen. Turns out that it's probably going to happen. So I was wrong there again. So noting my wrongs, I, th- I, you know, I don't think that the, all this geopolitics will come to fruition. Mm. And I secretly am hoping that they do. I think it'll be healthy for Ireland and Scotland to be independent. Mm. Uh, it'll represent growth for the EU. And I don't think it'll set a good precedent, uh, for other states if, you know, when, when Britain leaves. Uh, so my prediction is that not much will change and I'm hoping that I'm wrong. Um, and here's my prediction. And I want to note as well that I was wrong about Donald Trump. I was wrong about Brexit vote. Um, so just take all of this with a grain of salt, but I'm predicting that within the next, within the next 20 years, if I could time travel straight there, I would say that England and the United Kingdom is actually back in the European Union. I would imagine that they would find, the Parliament will find some way to back out of this referendum and will remain part of the United Kingdom. And I think that this, the European Union. 
And I th- yeah, I, I think they'll re- sorry remain part of the European Union. And I think the effect that this has had on the European economy, on the United Kingdom economy, will have a detrimental effect on the conservative leaders within Europe. I feel the Front National, Golden Dawn, uh, you know, the other conservative leaders within Europe might start to look around and say, fuck, okay, maybe we need to start rejigging our policies towards um, reform rather than leaving. Because I think that the European Union might at this point be too big to fail. You should actually add there that um, it's not just the implications for the EU and for Britain that we are so interested in Brexit. It's also that... It, it grants an opportunity now to other states, uh, especially weaker states, you know, in the periphery, so to speak, um, to either stuff this up completely, uh, they'll lose the opportunity to grow and to renegotiate favorable trading terms with the UK. Mm. And they'll lose the opportunity to benefit from a weaker pound and grow their own currency and strengthen their own, uh, yeah, strengthen their own currency by uh, capitalizing um, on a new sort of relative gain. So, for example, you know the South African rand is you know is gained. Uh, oh yeah, and is gained to the dollar, and sometimes that's bad for business because it means that we can't uh, we can't sell our goods as much as you know as cheaply as we used to. But it also means that we can buy goods a lot cheaper. Yeah. So the things that we needed that we couldn't previously afford can now be purchased. Um. So for you know so for other countries it's important to realize the opportunities now with Brexit going through. Um, to establish themselves as new mem- as members of the new core, absolutely, uh, or maybe not the core, at least begin the movement, the, the the travel towards the core. And you can already see Turkey starting to take advantage of the situation, dealing, making negotiations with um, Israel to to lower that conflict, doing the same thing with Russia, which is one yeah. of the things that the European Union has said to to Turkey that it needs to do. And Turkey might yeah. start to petition the European Union and be like, "Hey, guys." We're still here. We would love to join, yeah. uh, which they've always yeah. wanted to do. So it's yeah. we live in interesting times, guys. Um, it really is fascinating. It would be so interesting. You know, see, just I was reminded by this this backstabbing move by Michael Governor. <laughs> Imagine if like if Nigel Farage you know, turns out to be like the the future leader of the EU Parliament and uses the British separation to yeah. uh, to centralize power in the EU construct that unified military force and go to war with Britain the same <laughs> way <laughs> okay in the same way that um it, Emperor Palpatine managed to do <laughs> Okay, we'll see what happens. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other ACOS tracks and articles. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. So send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. That's L-A-N-D-S-O-F. L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And if you didn't listen to that directly, then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.